This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Andrew Foyce. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on the Federal News Network. My name is Andy Foyce. I'm the host of this show and the chair of the Administrative Conference, which everyone calls ACUS. Um, Our producer today is Peter Masurlian. ACUS is an independent federal agency, the mission of which is simply put to make government work better. Uh, And we specifically focus on making recommendations to improve federal agency administrative procedures. This episode will take us between the lines of an issue of importance to tens of millions of Americans or more who interact with federal administrative agencies every year, specifically the red tape involved and the hoops to be jumped through in order for people to do what they need to do with the federal government. After all, these are the processes by which people access a whole range of services, benefits and services such as Social Security, Medicare, and veterans' benefits. It's how they pay taxes, obtain licenses and permits, achieve educational and business goals, promote health and safety in their communities, uh, obtain redress for violations of their rights, and defend themselves against allegations of legal wrongdoing by federal agencies. These obstacles can be especially challenging for low-income people, people with disabilities, people who may not speak English well or at all, and other underserved communities. Most uh, do so without the help of lawyers or other representation. Scholars who study this problem refer to this red tape as administrative burden. One scholar calls it sludge. So for the next hour, we will look at how we can identify and reduce the administrative burdens imposed by federal agencies. Let me say up front once again that uh, only recommendations adopted by its assembly that I will identify can be attributed to uh, ACUS as an official position. So to provide answers to our questions about administrative burdens, we are joined by four highly accomplished experts in the field. So let's get to it. Our first guests are nationally recognized experts in the obstacles people encounter when trying to deal with administrative agencies. Pam Hurd and Don Moynihan are both Ph.D. professors at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, which is also my alma mater. They have co-authored a book called Administrative Burdens, Policymaking by Other Means. They also just submitted a report to ACUS, along with Amy Widman of Rutgers, called Identifying and Reducing Burdens in Administrative Processes. Professor Hurd's alma mater is Colby College, which my wife also attended, so I have to give a shout-out there. So we have a lot of connections. Professor Moynihan, uh, along with co-authoring the two products with Professor Hurd, has also written three other books. He is an internationally recognized expert in making government work better, which is exactly the same mission as ACUS. Welcome to Between the Lines, professors. Use the term administrative burden. Could you define and describe that for us, please? So we think of administrative burden as the frictions people encounter when they interact with government. Um, These are uh, maybe delays that they encounter or a sense of frustration, um, or if they're having difficulty finding out information about a particular program. I see. Um, and what can you tell us about why are the reasons that uh, individuals interact with the federal government? Why, what are they trying to achieve? 
So this is typically in the context of people trying to directly access benefits or services from the government. So this can be anything from going and getting your license renewed or getting a new passport to trying to access disability benefits or unemployment insurance. So it really runs the gamut, but it's really about those sort of direct interactions that people have with government. And people would consider uh, that uh, one important thing, but uh, and that may be a source of, of burdens. But the the procedures that agencies require, the the hoops that people have to jump through, um, uh, is that a, another concern? Yeah, that absolutely can make these processes harder or easier. Uh, so in the first place, people have to know about those hoops, and then they have to know how to satisfy them, and so. If you take an example like an asset test, which we sometimes use in welfare programs to demonstrate that you don't have too much money to qualify for the program, documenting that you don't have assets can be a very complicated process in some cases. And are the procedures uniform amongst agency or agencies or do people seeking benefits for different things need to um, use procedures uh, that are uh, distinct in each agency? No, they're pretty radically different across agencies. So, for example, if you're um, applying for to receive your Social Security retirement benefits, there's actually not much you have to do. You <laughs> all you have to do is go down to a Social Security benefit office um, or apply online, and it really only takes a few minutes because the government has kept track of all of your earnings and all of the things they need to keep track of to figure out whether or not you're eligible for that benefit and how much you should receive for it. In contrast, for people trying to apply, for example, to Medicaid, which is health insurance for low-income and disabled populations, um, it's an entirely different process. You have to produce a ton of documentation, fill out a lot of forms, and basically prove um, with repeated interactions and spending a lot of time and sometimes even a bit of money um, to show that you are actually eligible for that program so that you can receive benefits. So it varies widely across um, agencies and actual programs. It also varies widely across states if programs are federal programs that are administered by states. So what it means to apply for unemployment insurance might vary dramatically from one state to another. And we see very different outcomes when it comes to take up of unemployment insurance. That also extends to other programs like SNAP or Medicaid. So there are, there are some programs, that federal pro, uh, benefit programs that are administrated by, by state agencies. Is that correct? That's correct. So SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is our one of our actually largest federal benefit programs, is, um, is funded by the federal government, but states actually administer it. Um, a program like Medicaid, which is we spend large fractions of the federal budget on it, low-income populations, um, it's how low-income populations receive health insurance. Um, that program is partially funded by the federal government and funded by the states, but the states are mostly responsible for administering it. So right. truthfully, aside from Social Security and Medicare, most other uh, social welfare programs, at least, are administered at the state level, and there is a lot of variation about how they administer them. Well, that makes it even more complicated for people, um, obviously. Uh, you know, I hate to admit this, but uh, th this year was my uh, Medicare birthday, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, tr I tried successfully in the end to 
uh, sign up for Medicare, and um, I found it very complicated uh, to figure out the substantive benefits of you know Part A through D. You know which which of these do you do you choose and sign up for, and the the procedures, most of which were online, but they wound up having to send me a, a code number in the mail, um, which I, which I found very, very weird in in this high tech age, and it took two three weeks for me, for me to get it. So. Um, uh, that just shows how everyone at some point is, is going to face these issues. So you did a, um, a wonderful study um, that, that I've read uh, and a report to ACUS uh, that you gave us just a, a month or two ago and that we're in the process of, of working on. Um, can you talk briefly about the methodology you, you used for that? And, of course, it's on administrative burden. Yeah. So uh, along with Amy Woodman uh, at Rutgers University, we talked to people across different agencies about existing practices that they had when it came to uh, reducing administrative burdens. So we wanted to learn some best practices that we could amplify and share. And we also asked them about challenges that they encountered too. What were things that were making it difficult for them to make services easier for the public to access? I see. And yes, thank you for mentioning Professor Amy Woodman of, of Rutgers, who I actually had on on a, a previous show a month or two ago on a on a different topic. Uh, in your report to ACUS, you, you identify three categories of administrative burden. What are they? Um, these are uh, compliance costs or learning costs, compliance costs, and psychological costs. So briefly, learning costs are the processes of just sort of figuring out what programs you might be eligible for, um, figuring out how to apply for them, um, and sometimes even figuring out how to stay on them, because a lot of programs require that you recertify periodically to show you're still eligible. The compliance costs are the sort of time, the paperwork, the time, the documentation, what we might typically think of as red tape um, involved in those processes. And psychological costs are everything from stigma that we might experience, particularly with poverty-related programs, um, but also just stress, frustration, and anxiety that people experience in the context of these processes. Keeping in mind that some populations, for example, uh, low-income populations and disabled people, um, tend to interact a lot with uh, benefit programs that have a lot of burdens embedded in them. And so for those populations, it's oftentimes the repeated interactions that um, exacerbate, well, all of these costs, but I think especially the psychological costs. I see. That's very interesting that you can break it up into those uh, three buckets for for analysis and help for people. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there for for this segment. Um, We'll be back with uh, Professors Hurd and Moynihan uh, in a moment in the next segment. Uh, We have to take a break now. Uh, You are listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone, to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference on the Federal News Network. We continue our conversation now with Georgetown professors Pam Hurd and Don Moynihan, about the burdens that people face when they're dealing and interacting with the federal government. Uh, we, we left off the last segment with Professor Hurd talking to us about the three uh, sorts of uh, burdens that they, um, that they have uh, seen and, and discovered, learning costs, compliance costs, 
and psychological costs. So um, what about from the agency perspective? Are some of these uh, burdens necessary? And, um, uh, and if they didn't have them, would they be able to f- fulfill their missions? Yeah. So to a certain extent, um, burden broadly is necessary from the standpoint that nearly all programs are conditional. Some people are eligible um, and some people are not. And ensuring that only those eligible receive benefits is kind of where these burdens arise. I think the question actually is, is where is that burden distributed? We can distribute that burden on the state or we can distribute that burden on the individuals. So security retirement benefits are a really good example where we've shifted that burden largely to the state. Individuals have to do some things, but we've mostly at the state level kind of managed that burden. In a lot of other programs, though, we put the onus of managing all that burden or large parts of it on individuals. I think the burdens do sometimes matter here because if one of the things we know is that if there's more burdens, there tends to be lower take up of services among those who are eligible. And if your goal is to reach all of those who are eligible, uh, ultimately having maybe only 50% of those receive the services limits the reach and effectiveness of the program. I see. Did you find in your study that uh, some people or or groups of people are disproportionately affected by administrative burden? Yeah, absolutely. You do see this um, certain groups more affected than others. So a lot of poverty-based programs tend to have higher levels of burden. So programs like the Medicaid program or uh, temporary aid to needy families, those programs, targeted programs tend to have higher levels of burden. It's also the case that disabled populations um, face programs with uh, very, very high levels of administrative burden, in large part due to the processes required to prove disability, which in practice are are just incredibly complicated and onerous. And um, also important to keep in mind that sometimes some of the populations, uh, some of these populations um, are going to be the ones that struggle the most to actually manage those burdens. Um, so, So yes, there's there's definitely evidence of sort of disproportionate impact among certain groups. Uh, That's what I suspected. Uh, Did you find any racial or uh, ethnic um, disproportionality? Yes. So you can think about this in two different ways. So you can think about this sort of just generically, historically, administrative burdens have been used. um, For example, if you think about voting, (laughs) Um, and procedures and burdens we've um, imposed on um, people's right to vote vote disproportionately fall on um, uh, Black Americans, for example. Um, We see immigrant population, other racialized minority populations also face substantially higher uh, burdens, for example, around immigration processes. Um, So so yes, there is definitely kind of... uh, disproportionate burden experienced by uh, uh, racially marginalized populations. To give another specific example here, we see lower take up of children's health insurance among Hispanic families. Um, And we think that's partly because of uh, fears that are incorrect, but the psychological cost uh, where they have a belief that uh, citizen children would not be eligible for these services, 
or that sharing their information with authorities might create risks for family members who are undocumented. And I just listened to a lecture from uh, Professor Cass Sunstein, who um, I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, one of the um, disproportionate um, effects that he was talking about was uh, that there's a variable for uh, location and geography. Um, and he said that studies prove that um, if you're close to the courthouse, for example, or to um, the um, office of the federal agency you're trying to interact with, uh, you tend to be more successful at um, at obtaining the services uh, you, you need than if you lived further away. Uh, and I, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence about that, including in the Social Security Disability Program, where they kind of looked at where they closed Social Security field agencies, and they absolutely found an impact in those areas on the fraction of people applying for disability benefits. And so we might think about certain areas as being like deserts of administrative support, where you have to travel further, maybe you don't have public transportation, um, or, or maybe you don't have groups around you like nonprofits who can help you access services. And that certainly makes it harder for people living in those spaces to avail of benefits they're entitled to. Okay, um, back to your report for for a second. Uh, in your report, you talk about what authorities govern how federal agencies identify and reduce administrative burden. Well, what are those laws and authorities? So there has been quite an increase in attention to this topic um, since the Biden administration took office. Under previous administrations, there had been attention to customer service to some degree. Uh, the Biden administration signed a customer experience and service delivery executive order that explicitly named bur administrative burdens as something to be reduced. He told specific agencies, the high impact service um, agencies, this, these are federal agencies who interact most with members of the public to target burdens that they were responsible for minimizing. So there's that executive order. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget also provided guidance to agencies telling them to use existing legal authorities, um, including their performance management reporting and their budget preparation process, which is Circular A11, to uh, prioritize burden reduction. So that's using two other existing legal processes. And then finally, OIRA, uh, the Office of Information and Regulatory Assessment within OMB, uh, provided new guidance to an old law, the Paperwork Reduction Act, which essentially told agencies, we're going to take a much broader understanding of what paperwork reduction need, means now in light of this idea of administrative burdens. And in this guidance, they you know, specified the concepts of learning costs, compliance costs, and psychological costs as things that agencies should be trying to measure, identify, and reduce. I see. So how can agencies comply? What strategies can they use to identify and reduce burdens? So agencies have a variety of tools at hand, and I think many of these tools are relatively new in government. Um, and they also have uh, maybe to adopt a cultural mindset change. So a couple of specific tools. One is the idea of human-centered design, which is that when you're uh, thinking about the design and implementation of services, you consult with potential clients, 
you identify areas where they might struggle, and you try to fix those as you're designing the service, and then on an ongoing basis once the service is in place. It just means having more of a customer-centric approach as the service is being put in place. A second tool would be to use information and technology better. So this means if, you, if the government already has data about, say, someone who's eligible for a program from another um, venue, then you would share that data rather than ask the citizen to provide it a, a second time. Um, so between those two things, which you know implies having a certain amount of capacity, you can do a lot to minimize administrative burdens, uh, but it also requires having uh, a team in place and agencies uh, which typically takes a form of a customer experience team uh, to perform this. And we see that agencies that do this very well, like the VA, tend to have large and experienced customer experience teams. Thank you so much to both of you for that education on administrative burden and your report to the administrative conference. When we come back, we will talk with Professor Eloise Pasikoff on recent steps that ACUS has taken on administrative burden. You're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference on the Federal News Network. My name is Andy Foyce. I'm the chair of the administrative conference and your host. We've been talking about red tape. That is what uh, experts call administrative burdens. They're the, um, the burdens and the challenges and the processes and procedures that people face and, and have to overcome when they need to interact with the federal uh, government, uh, particularly administrative agencies. With us now to talk about all this is Professor Eloise Pasikoff. Eloise Pasikoff is an acclaimed professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. She's a nationally recognized expert in administrative law and other disciplines. She's co-editor of one of the leading casebooks on administrative law. Among her many professional highlights include her service as a clerk to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Professor Paskoff is a very good friend of ACUS, serving as a public member and as chair of the Administration and Management Committee. Professor Paskoff, thank you for appearing on Between the Lines, and welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll be talking about, uh, uh, with Professor Paskoff, what a recommendation approved by ACUS as an official position. It was based on the report about which we heard in the last two segments. It recommends to federal administrative agencies a list of steps they can take to identify and reduce burdens on the public. Professor, of course, you led the committee consideration of that recommendation. So let me start off by asking you about the preamble. What did the preamble of the recommendation say about administrative burdens and how much of a problem they are? So it can be really hard to navigate administrative processes to access benefits or services or otherwise interact with government agencies to get what you need from them. So think about, for example, the millions of people each year who want to use the veteran services to which they're entitled or to get student financial aid or social security benefits or disaster assistance or unemployment insurance. The list goes on and on. And so the preamble talks about some of the unintentional difficulties in accessing these programs. The preamble talks about three kinds of costs that collectively make up administrative burden. 
We talk about learning costs or the difficulty of finding out information about the existence of programs, eligibility for them, how to get them. We talk about compliance costs or the difficulty of completing all the right forms in all the right ways, maybe even having to travel in person to do so. And we talk about psychological costs or the stress and frustration with trying hard, but not always successfully to do everything right in the process. So the goal of this project is to encourage agencies to find ways to make it easier along all of these lines for the public to access the services they're providing. Yeah, you know, these uh, requirements to interact with the government for services really does apply to, you know, hundreds of millions of Amer- Americans, um, inclu- including all of us. This year was my Medicare year. And I had a tremendous amount of difficulties um, navigating through the Social Security Administration and and the various parts to sign up for what I needed to. Um, So I I think we all can identify with those problems. The preamble also acknowledged that some burdens are actually necessary. Uh, Why is that so? So that's definitely true. And one of the things we spent time talking about as a committee was the value of certain kinds of burdens. So, for example, when certain programs or services have eligibility requirements, there needs to be a system for establishing eligibility. You just talked about Medicare. That's one layer of eligibility. Think about veteran services. You have to be a veteran in order to access those services. So those eligibility requirements obviously come with some degree of burden. You have to establish eligibility. Other kinds of burdens um, are necessary to protect program integrity. So you want to have some kinds of screening limits in place to protect against fraud, for example. And so, so again, that comes with some degree of burden. The kind of burdens we're talking about in this recommendation are the unnecessary burdens, the ones that just don't serve any meaningful, valuable purpose, but just make interacting with the government needlessly hard. Does the preamble also recognize that administrative burdens sometimes fall disproportionately on certain groups of people? It does. We spent some time talking about this in committee and that then made it into the preamble. So a lot of us in in the committee, as we were talking about it, just shared stories of our own experiences observing these disproportionate effects, whether it was helping an elderly relative access Social Security benefits or seeing non-native English speakers struggle as they tried to talk with an intake worker to find the right form for a passport renewal or being physically disabled and inexplicably being required to go to an office in person instead of conducting business over the phone. And so the preamble to the recommendation draws on the report's findings, not just our own personal experiences, but actual the findings in the report to point out that while everyone can experience some kinds of administrative burden, not everyone experiences them with the same degree of difficulty. Let's get into the recommendations themselves. What are some of the burden identification and reduction principles that were identified in the recommendation? We started with this idea of principles just to sort of formulate before getting into specific recommendations, the general mindset that agencies should be approaching this project with. So overall, the idea is just to have the goal of identifying burdens and then reducing them in mind is a good thing to do. We also recommend in this principle section that agencies think about key life experiences, such as retirement or the birth of a child or an unexpected disaster, and put themselves in the shoes of people needing to get services during these and other times. What are the burdens that would come up? These are some of the overall principles the conference voted to recommend. And what strategies does the recommendation suggest agencies use to identify these burdens? Okay, so before you can reduce burdens, you have to identify them. And so we start with a few strategies on how agencies can and should identify burdens. 
One of the primary ones is to conduct outreach. Don't just sit inside agency offices to figure out what burdens agencies are imposing. Ask the people who are actually affected. Do some client outreach, request public comment, consult with advocacy groups who work with people who interact with the agency's programs. And then take this outreach seriously by walking through all the steps to access the agency's programs and services. What burdens are in place at each new part of the process? And once agencies have identified burdens, as uh, you say, uh, what uh, does the recommend say about strategies they can use to uh, actually reduce those burdens? Great. So, of course, agencies' particular burdens, some of them may be unique to each agency. So it's hard to come up with one-size-fits-all overall instructions. But we do have some general recommendations for where agencies can look. So, for example, how about limiting the number of steps in different processes? Or how about reducing the length of required forms? How about making sure that people can interact with programs online and through their phones and not only be required to show up in person? How about improving data sharing across programs to pre-populate enrollment forms where possible? How about making sure that people are permitted to get help from others in engaging with administrative processes? These are a number of the burden reduction strategies that we suggest. All of which make a lot of sense. One thing that the recommendations talked about as well was the uh, organization, the structure of the agency itself, uh, if um, reformed, could improve identification and reduction. Uh, what does the recommendation say about that? Great. So we we took it as a, an important focus that agency culture and organization matter a lot um, if you want to implement anything new. So in this section of the recommendation, we talk about how political appointees, senior executives, and other agencies' leaders should use their positions to overall articulate burden reduction as a goal. We also recommend that agencies build customer experience teams to help improve interactions with the public. And then this next one is a good reminder for us lawyers. We recommend that agencies involve their legal teams early in burden reduction efforts so that lawyers don't just say no on the back end, but are actually involved with designing the efforts from the start. Does the recommendation suggest roles for OMB and Congress? Of course, agencies don't work in a vacuum. Not only do we recommend that agencies collaborate more among themselves in developing burden reduction best practices, but we also recommend that OMB provide more guidance on things like data sharing agreements and flexibilities under the Paperwork Reduction Act, and that Congress include more specific allowances for data sharing across programs where it would be helpful to those programs without disproportionately harming other important interests. Thank you so much, Professor, for that description of what ACUS is doing to help federal agencies identify and reduce the burdens on people who have to deal with them. Next steps, uh, everyone, is uh, implementation. Uh, we work hard with agencies and the Congress and OMB to try to implement the uh, recommendations that we're making. Uh, our next guest to continue this conversation is Todd Rubin, and we'll hear from him about what OMB is doing about all of this. Thanks again for being here, Professor. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to work on these recommendations. Stay tuned, everyone. Thanks for coming back to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference talking about how to identify and reduce the burdens faced by anyone who needs to interact 
with federal administrative agencies. Our next guest to discuss this issue is Todd Rubin. Todd now works on the customer experience team in the Office of of Management and Budget, where he helps federal agencies identify and reduce administrative burdens in public-facing services. Todd is a great friend of of ACUS and of of mine, having worked at uh, ACUS for more than five years, first as an attorney advisor and later as a senior supervisor. He previously, before ACUS, worked at the Department of Education and the Bazelon Center for Mental Health. So, Todd, welcome to Between the Lines. It's great to talk with you again. Yeah, thank you, Andy. It is great to be here. Well, thank you. Um, First question is that you work on the uh, what you call the CX team at OMB. What is CX and what does the CX team do? Thanks. So the customer experience, CX stands for customer experience. And the customer experience team, broadly speaking, helps to implement a variety of customer experience guidelines, including those that stem from a recent executive order. Go into all of that. Before that, I'll lay out some basic context. In his first joint session to Congress, the president said, we have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works and can deliver for our people. The federal government interacts with millions of people every day. Just some examples, one in four Americans is covered by Medicaid. TSA screens more than 2 million passengers a day. Each interaction is an opportunity for government to build public trust. We know that people often have to navigate many government websites, offices, and phone numbers to access services. In recent years, the annual paperwork burden on the public has been around 9 billion hours. And over decades, Americans' trust in their government has declined. Some of those reasons are beyond anyone's control, but there's also a strong and increasing body of evidence that we can repair this trust through improving individual interactions with government. About two years ago, President Biden signed that executive order, directing a whole-of-government approach to improving customer experience. The OMB CX team coordinates the government's implementation of this executive order, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and does so through three main work streams. First, our work with high-impact service providers, which are the 40 or so federal entities that have the greatest touch points with the public. Secondly, projects that cut across agencies to improve services at key moments in people's lives, like having a child. And third, working with colleagues to enable this through shared products and services that federal agencies can access to improve their work with the public. Agencies often work in silos. What uh, have you, what has uh, OMB done to get agencies to think outside of these silos? So the administration is focused on this concept of services as the unit for measurement, management, and improvement. Services cut across organizational functions. They need not align to programs or organizational charts. They do, however, require collaboration in order to be delivered effectively. We at the CX team have been doing a service designation exercise with our high-impact service providers. It's easy to think that launching a new online appointment scheduling tool is providing a new service. It's not. It's providing a new channel of access. On performance.gov forward slash CX, you can see from previous years where high-impact service providers have completed this exercise. When all of this started, many agencies thought, well, I don't provide services because many think of services to mean benefits, but benefits are just one type of service. If you're receiving taxpayer dollars, then you are definitely providing a service. Can you share any success stories of agencies identifying and reducing burdens? Absolutely. The executive order commits agencies to dozens of short-term commitments to build trust in government, and we've seen tremendous progress. So, for example, 
farmers are spending less time on paperwork. The direct loan application administered by USDA has been reduced from 10 forms to now just one. And now the team is digitizing the form so farmers can complete it from home. The Social Security Administration now allows many beneficiaries to complete the disability process online, and the online form uses data already on file to automatically populate medical history. The IRS has doubled the number of customer call types that are eligible for callback, so people don't have to sit around waiting on hold. A lot of our listeners are government employees, so let's talk about staffing for a second. Can you say more about how you're building capacity within agencies to implement and operationalize CX principles with respect to staffing? OMB, in partnership with the Office of Personnel Management, has twice implemented an innovative hiring authority called Subject Matter Expert Qualification Assessment. I know that's a mouthful, so we often abbreviate that to SMEQA. And this can better enable the most qualified candidates to make it into the federal government. Traditional hiring has it that a federal human resources office will write a job announcement for a specific agency or component, post it, and then ask, then ask candidates to complete a self-assessment. In contrast, this new pilot pairs subject matter experts with human resource officials to develop those assessments, posts a single announcement through which multiple agencies can draw candidates, and conducts assessments with subject matter experts. There have been two government-wide pilots so far and about 40 hires. At least one agency has implemented its own pilot, and our hope is that this catches on. This is in addition to the FY24 president's budget, which would enable the government to hire more than 120 full-time equivalent with special expertise in these disciplines. Oh, that sounds great. Let's talk a little bit about trust and other measures of perception of, of government, which is not always terrific. Uh, what's going on there, and uh, what have the historical trends been? So, Andy, you're right. Historically, government has not performed well compared to the private sector. But data that have come in over the last two years look promising. First, on that historical government performance, Pew has tracked public trust in the federal government since the 1950s. Decades ago, nearly 80% of the public said they trust the federal government to do what is right most or all of the time. It was last measured in 2020 at around 20%. However, as I mentioned, the trend over the last several years makes me optimistic. According to Forrester, which tracks public perceptions in government beyond trust, we have made statistically significant gains the last several years. In 2022, there was a huge drop in satisfaction and experience across nearly all sectors, but the federal government remains statistically constant. This is a signal that we made so many gains in 2022 that, in some sense, we actually absorbed the changing negative expectations of the public. And our own data is even more encouraging we saw an upward trend between 2022 and 2023 as our efforts under the CX executive order were truly ramping up. So we have a long way to go, but early indications are that our efforts are paying off. Can you tell me about the administration's approach to building trust in government and how this approach builds on and differs from approaches taken by previous administrations? Since at least the Bush one administration, every president has had some initiative focused on an agency customer. These early initiatives were focused on customer service, which means improving how government interacts with people when people approach government with a problem. In contrast, customer experience is an entire relationship with a service. It focuses on how customers know of, learn about, and use an agency's product and service. The CX executive order embeds customer experience into the fabric of government. 
It included 36 concrete commitments of agencies to improve specific services. It explicitly calls out federal responsibility for programs that are state administered. It positions the OMB director as a stopgap between agencies because too often good initiatives stall when it's unclear who a decision maker is elevates the responsibility of customer experience within agencies and builds a framework for assessing and publicly reporting on service performance. And it aligns cross-government service delivery with key moments in people's lives. Todd, we've got just 30 seconds left, but I want to ask you about agency lawyers because many of our listeners um, are agency lawyers. What uh, can they do to empower their agencies? I think the key things there are reviewing language to ensure that it is plain language and therefore easily could be easily understood by the public. So when you are reviewing that web page or that form, that final version, you can both ensure that the language complies with the relevant legal requirements and can be readily understood by the public. Agency lawyers can also share a lead on data sharing efforts. Too often conversations about data sharing stall because they can get up in get caught up in these murky conversations between different agencies, general counsels. So lawyers really have the opportunity to move those conversations forward. Agency lawyers are often the ones who make determinations of how vague statutory requirements are implemented, and that can have huge impacts on process and requirements. So agency lawyers can ensure we remain outcome and people focused while maintaining program integrity. Well, thank you, Todd, for uh, being on the show and explaining how OMB is working to improve the customer experience with the federal government. Uh, Thank you to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts on administrative burdens. In coming months, we will explore other current topics of interest in administrative law and procedure. For more information on ACUS and these subjects and its work, go to www.acus.gov. For now, thank you all for listening, and I hope we pass the audition. You've been listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.